Good evening, everyone. I'm hot as fuck. Um, in every way that you could possibly take that. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Anyway, um, and Lord, by, I mean Tom Hiddleston. Um, we're going to get started, do a writer's table tonight because um, just thought we could do that and see how it would go. And I hope you guys have some questions in the chat room. And I hope, Rogue, you remember the question that you had earlier. Maybe it'll pop up. Maybe it'll come in handy. It Maybe. I got Jilly on the air. I'm not quite to the chat room yet, but I am here. I am here. That's cool. Ready to traumatize cool. the Mormons next door. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, uh, I did not realize um, that my sister's office, I did not realize that she keeps her window open, like, all the time. <laughs> and that her office is right next to, we have Mormons next door, and her office is right next to their office. <laughs> so, oh, no. let's talk about Dick. <laughs> let's. But, no, I'm going to tell you, actually, this is not, it, it's phallic, but it's not uh, about Dick. Okay, so. My mother and I were out, and we were um, adjacent to a farmer's market. And I wanted a banana. And so I went over there to the farmer's market, and I got a banana. It was about, I don't know, 75 cents. I only got one. Um, and I brought it back over, and I didn't have my purse. So I told my mom, I said, put this in your purse. And so she did. And I was going to have it for a snack, but I forgot until I got home an hour ago and didn't have my banana. So I called my mom. She's all the way out of her house. It's 15 minutes away. And I was like, you stole my banana. And this heifer <laughs> laughed. She laughed just like that. And she said, well, I guess I'll have to eat it. I said, I guess you will, heifer. And then I hung up on her. She really did steal my banana. She stole your banana. That's that's not very motherly. No. You know, my grandmother, my mother used to tell the stories. My grandmother, she'd take all the kids out to Dairy Queen for ice cream when they were young. This is like, you know, back when, you know, there were no cars. Them all to Dairy Queen to get an ice cream, and she'd get them all soft serve ice cream cone. And then to make sure, quote unquote, this was her line that they didn't make a mess, she'd lick all their cones flat and then hand it to them. What? Oh, yeah. That, yeah, her, that is her, evil. Like I said, it's not very motherly, but that was, that was her, um, that was her, uh, so she'd get all the ice cream on top, and it would just be a cone with ice cream in it. Right. Well, that's a heifer. <laughs> Especially since she had you met, she had five kids, so that was <laughs> she really was a heifer because that was a lot of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in several ways. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to fat shame her. I'm trying to. Um, she's greedy. <laughs> My grand, my grandmother was she was terrible. She was she was ter- she was terrible her her whole life. So um, I have I have I have no problems being mean about her. Well, she's an ice cream thief, and that's just that's almost as bad as being a cock block. You know, at her at her at her funeral, my grandmother's funeral, um, 
we show up, you know, and um, there weren't many people at the end of her life who were very close to her. But, you know, there was like family. That's family obligation, as you do. We took care of her through her death. And so we get to the funeral. And I asked my mom, and I said, Mama, who's um who's doing the eulogy? And she looked at me. She says, you are. And I went, excuse me? She says, you're doing the eulogy. And I said, well, that would have been nice to know. And she said, well, I'd figure you wouldn't mind. I said, oh, well, I do mind, but I especially don't mind, especially mind um, not having any warning. So right? we get to that part. Yeah, we get to that part of the service, and I get up there. And, well, I had to do this extemporaneously because I had nothing prepared. So it, I just was, I was just bullshit. I was just bullshitting everybody in the room, just talking some, I'm just, uh, and her friends are all nodding along about how wonderful she was. And after the thing's over, um, one of my friends who was there to support my, my mom and I and stuff, he comes to me, he says, I, I thought, is this, a, is this a different grandmother than the one I've been hearing about for years? And I said, no. He said, well, she sounded wonderful. <laughs> I said, what do you think I was going to do, trash talker at her funeral? Tell everybody how horrible she was. You see, you just made if that had been my family, nice. it would have gone down much differently. Like I've already written my my um, my aunt Holly Roller's um, eulogy. I won't be allowed to give it, but I have written it. I got mad at her, and so I wrote it and emailed it to her a couple of years ago. <laughs> I told her if she didn't behave, I was going to insist on doing the eulogy to her funeral. And here and and here is my second draft. And I sent it to her, and she called everybody in the family and told them I wasn't allowed to give her eulogy. And everybody was like, "Oh, I think she absolutely should give your eulogy." <laughs> this sounds like a marvelous idea. We could have some fun with this. I had an uncle who passed, um, and. Um, he was an asshole, and uh, we were—he didn't have any kids. Um, and his his fourth ex-wife is, buried him because she was his fourth ex-wife. Last, yeah, his fourth ex-wife, because um, the girlfriend refused, and the fourth ex-wife stepped up and took care of everything um, because she was still on all of his stuff because he hadn't. She got all of his insurance money. She got the house. Because he was a lazy ass and never changed any of it. So the girlfriend got shit. <laughs> anyways. Anyways. So the fourth ex-wife is, uh, had the funeral. And for some reason, she chose to have the showing in his home. Which, you know, it, that happens in the South. They'll bring the body to your house with 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 uh, in, in the coffin um, and set it up just like they would if they were in the funeral home. Um, I wouldn't want a dead body and, in my house. I don't care whose who's, who's dead body it was. I mean, and, like, that's what you do with a dead body. You get it out of the house. Traditionally, if you do bring the body home, someone stays with the body all night. And so, we, me and my cousins are sitting around drinking um, with the body. And um, we gave him a beer. I mean, we didn't actually give him a beer. We just put a can of beer in the in the coffin um, because no. Uh, and uh, we talked about what an asshole he was just the whole night. We just talked about all the asshole shit he'd ever done to all of us. Um, and it gets time to the to the funeral, and all through his eulogy, his four ex wives each got up and said something, 
And every single one of those bitches lied their ass off. I we were all looking at each other. <laughs> I was like, no. So they still they had the coffin open at the front of the of the sanctuary, right? And the fourth ex-wife goes over to the coffin and she's, you know, saying her last goodbye. She was the last one to speak. And she looks down into the coffin and my dumb ass has forgot to take the beer out. So the beer (laughs) So the ex-wife puts one hand on her hip, turns around and says, which one of you little assholes put this beer in the in the casket? And we're all looking at the ceiling. And she goes, it's not even the right brand. Looks <laughs> like some sort of parting gift. <laughs> so there was a debate. And finally, it was like, just just let him keep the beer. It's better beer than he ever drank. Let him, just let him keep it. <laughs> yeah, so let him keep uncle, it. My uncle got buried with a beer. <laughs> Once, once the dead body's been on the beer, they get to keep the beer. <laughs> get to keep the way the it beer. goes. I mean, you know, it was a Boston logger. He should have been proud to be buried with a Boston logger. <laughs> I'm just saying. It could have been a Coors Light, which honestly I think is what he drank. Anyways, I have an uncle who's buried with a beer. A very nice bottle of beer. (sighs) I don't know how I'm going to put that in my little uh, bullet points. He was buried with a beer. You could put that as your short pitch. He was buried with a beer. (laughs) I am totally changing the short pitch for this to that. Threaten the chat room if they'll queue up some questions to the writer's table that I'm, we're just going to talk about township because I'm still traumatized about those sheep. <laughs> For those of you who don't play township, township, when you harvest the wool from the sheep, they're naked and they shiver. And they're very skinny. <laughs> and make little sad faces like you, like you violated their privacy. So you have to feed. So I told Julie, I said, look, when you have the sheep, do not harvest your wool until you have enough feed to feed your sheep again. Because you don't want to leave your sheep like that. <laughs> right? It makes you feel makes you feel really cruel. It's just it was terrible. But there was one question. Um Rogue asked about uh April's RT and it is the one with the sequels. Uh, we're doing um a sequel challenge in April, which means that you're you're to write a sequel to an already published work. It doesn't have to be one that was on Rough Trade. And the minimum word count is 30K. Okay. Um, LEF, this is sort of a kind of a logistical organizational question. For longer projects, do you break it down to separate files or just one long file? Um I'm, I'm sure we each have different answers to that. So, Kira, you go first. 
Um, I normally do one big file. Because when I'm when I'm reading now now there was a time when um, professionally as uh, when I was when I was doing a lot of original work I would do one file for each chapter. Do you know how annoying it is to open up twenty fucking files to read a book? Yes, it's super <laughs> annoying. It is super annoying, and then even worse. You have to put it all together and merge it all together to create one file to send to um, whoever you're going to send it to, um, editor, agent, publisher. It is quite frustrating. Annoying. Very annoying. So I tend to have one big file. Um, even like for Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, I do have individual episodes as individual files, but I also have a big file just for myself. So when I want to read that series, I can open it up and read all of it in one big file. And I had the same thing for what might have been for Ties That Bind, for Sentinels of Atlantis, even though I wrote them um, in individual files because they were all told in episode novella format. For my personal reading, on my I have a very large file. <laughs> yeah, I I used to I used to always have separate each chapter in its own file. Um, that's what I used to write. Um, I have an inclination sometimes to still write that way. Um, I think it's because that's just how I started writing was keeping every chapter separate. Um, and that allowed me to, and part of that was, at, you know, editing control. Um, and it, it also a little bit mirrors some of the stuff we would do in technical writing where you don't tend to have just one enormous file until the end, but there are tools that are pulling all of your stuff together for you. You're not doing it typically not doing it manually. And the reason you would do that is because you like, you kind of have like a source thing. There's lots of people working on a file. So, you know, you check out a file and work on it and check it back in, and you can't have things in one just one big blob. So when I started writing, um, like writing fan fiction, it made sense to me in my head to have things in a separate file per chapter, except for like short story, anything under 50K, I would just keep in one blob. Um, and part of that was also because, you know, when I first started working with betas, um, I would rotate, you know, like four or five chapters to a beta at a time. Um, so that they weren't, you know, getting two or 300,000 words or whatever and getting bogged down with it. And I, it just started becoming, you know, when I started working writing fanfic again, um, like some like emergence is in individual chapters. That's 226,000 words, basically in 5,000 word pieces. Um, and it just became cumbersome. Because I would have to, in order to do the ebook, I had to put it into a master file. And then my master master is the individual chapters. That was what I would consider the main source. And it just started driving me crazy. So I kind of have a little bit of a hybrid model now. It's not exactly um, just one big file. Because when I'm doing, like, a writing challenge, um, I don't like to leave um, – I don't like to have files that are more than about 100,000 words. It's just my preference because if something goes wrong, and part of it is that I work on a Mac, and it's not that Macs are unstable, but Word puts all, Microsoft puts their effort into its Windows platform, and so its Mac version is glitchy in ways that the Windows version of Word is not. And I've had whole files, just I open them up, and it's nothing but symbols. 
And it's not a font, it's the file, the entire file's corrupted. And I have to go into a backup and pull it out. So I don't, I have usually multiple revisions of a file, but I tend to do my active writing in, in, in like a, a, sort of like a scratch file and then paste it into the master document. So I kind of have just developed a process that works for me around ensuring I don't have data loss. But mostly I keep it now in a few, one or two files, but I tend to write one chapter at a time and then move that content into the master file when I'm done. Well, I would just, you know, if you're writing the word app, I've actually never had a problem with the word app. This is all word on the Mac. Um, but it, you know, it never, it always is a good idea to do revisions. Like when you, People don't do don't do actual versioning. Versioning, you know, it's like when documents started auto saving, people stopped doing manual versioning. Um, and no, you do not want to turn on automatic versioning. That's like a surefire path to corruption. But um, when I go in to do significant work on something, I'll create a ver major or minor version. So, like my first draft is version zero, my first edit is version one, you know, and then I have all those those versions in there. So sometimes by the time I publish, I'm on version four or five. And if a file corrupts, I've got the one before it. So I just, you know, this is just because I've had problems with corruption with Microsoft files. I am just careful about versioning my file periodically. But that's just, you know, that's my process. That's the way I do it. Um, I don't like trusting um, the technology gods with, with my words more than I have to. So that's what I do. Mac does have a word process. They have a, it's called Pages. Um, I personally don't like it. I've tried using Pages. I'd rather use OpenOffice than, excuse the name, I think they have an, a Mac version. I'd rather use OpenOffice than Pages. I find Pages to be, I don't like its interface at all. It's, it's like, what, 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 what is this crap? So, no, I, I don't care for it. Also, it does not paste well into um, WordPress. So I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Pages. I'd rather use Google Drive than use Pages. <laughs> and that's saying something because Google Docs is horrible. Oh. Um, well, I do do. Um, I do Word. Um, not like, I don't let Word make them for me, but when I get ready to start my second draft for um, my Quantum Bang, I'll make I'll make a copy of the, the original file and uh, put my other one in a work folder because each of my projects will have a folder and then I'll have a work folder and an art folder. I'm crazy. Okay, and probably a research folder. Um, and so my work folder contains all the versions of my of, of my story. Um, it'll have all the betas, um, and then I'll you know I'll have a one file that's my final. Yeah, I keep I move them off. I don't keep like ten versions of a document. You know, um, so yeah, it. I mean, I find versioning to be a um, – it makes me feel safer going in. It because, is a comfort. You know, especially with editing. It is a comfort. Because, I mean, if I go in and I'm working on – I've got – because now, since I stopped doing chaptering, now I go into a file that's maybe 200,000 words, and I open it to edit it. Um, if I've versioned, all I've risked losing is my editing, which is – still a horrible thing, but it's better than losing the actual file itself. So, um, 
Yeah, well, if you write on paper, you've, you've got a – I mean, there are still risks with writing on paper. The risk is that you lose your notebook before you, you know, you um, get back to your computer. I mean, if you write a lot, like you fill up a notebook before you write, you know, you said, I mean, there's risk, there's risk either way, and there's ways to do risk mitigation. I mean, I have a friend who writes in a notebook, and when she, before she leaves the coffee shop, when she, because that's what she loves to do, she loves to get coffee, she goes and sits down with her composition book, that's what she has to have, with the damn green cover, and it has to, she, has, she handwrites, you know, and she takes photographs. She takes a quick picture on her phone before she leaves the coffee shop in case anything happens to that notebook of her latest stuff. And then she deletes the photos after she types everything up. She never even goes back to them. It's just a security thing for her in the event she loses that notebook. So typically, I I would say typically we don't see people doing extraordinary measures to protect their content unless they've lost something. I had a major loss. So, so yeah. Ellie asked, do you always break down the chapter as you write, or do you go back and mark chapters after you finish a section? Mm. For, for me, because I'm a plotter, um, and I am a firm believer of structure, um, and the structure for me um, is, is very important in that um, each of my chapters has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, each of my scenes has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So there's no haphazard construction of chapters for me. Um, I know what's going to happen in each one of my chapters from start to finish before I ever start writing. Now, there are occasions where I've gone back in the second draft and thought, and restructured and sometimes merged small chapters together if I thought the events played well. But that usually requires me to do some tweaking to get my beginning and middle and end. So, I, so that way I don't end up having two ends, having an end in the middle, which doesn't make any sense to me. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. if, if I ask just a merger, um, and that will happen during a second draft. I... Um... I do not chapter. The only time, well, I'll, I'll give a caveat and I'll come back to that. But I, I write. I know what's going. I have it when I sit down to write a chapter. I know what's going in that chapter. Um, I figure out what my what my scene list. For, it's either sometimes it's a scene list. Like this is the scenes I need to have, and sometimes it's hey, these are the things I need to cover in this chapter because sometimes like um, like a data point can be covered in like one or two different scenes, and I'll just kind of feel out which chapter, which which scene it feels better to put that data point in. But anyway, so I have I have a, a plan going into a chapter. If a chapter, if if, and this is this is a, a kind of a nod to my wordiness here, is that if a scene is running really long, like let's say I've got I'm planning five scenes for a chapter, which is actually kind of a lot for me in a single chapter. But let's say there's five, and I've written my first scene, and I'm at 4,500 words, I'm I'm not writing hmm. any more scenes. <laughs> Um, right. And usually a scene that long, a single scene that's almost 5,000 words has a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, it has an arc. Otherwise, that scene wouldn't be that long. So what I do is call the chapter done and then work on restructuring what comes next. So I don't have like a chapter plan in advance like Kira does, but I have a chapter plan when I'm writing. And then it's really common for me to tweak that um, if – because I, especially dialogue scenes run really long for me sometimes. And if I'm really, 
and I'll think I could fit two or three things in two or three major plot points, and I only got through half of one. And I'm like, okay, this chapter is done, and we're going to have a part two of that chapter. And then the other three things I was supposed to do are getting bumped out two chapters. And that's happened. That has actually happened to me before where I didn't just have a didn't get everything done in one scene and the scene that I was working on needed a part two. And so it was like two additional chapters from what I had planned. Um, but and, and the only, I, I think there's, there's a caveat to that about chapters is the stories that I'm kind of writing as like a short story or a novella format where it's more of a three part arc. I tend to, I tend to just sit down and write those. I don't write part one, part two, part three, I just tend to write it. I mean, I know where the beginning, middle, and end are. And then I put the part, you know, the part markers in when I'm posting. And I don't consider I do that, that chaptering. Too, but I consider that more of a object lesson for other writers. <laughs> like, dude, here are my parts. Are you paying attention? One, two, three, here are my parts. <laughs> I just, with, 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 anything, with anything that's more than... Um, about 20,000 words, 21,000 words or so, 20, 21,000 words. I put parts in, and it's partially to pull the reader's eye to keep them moving down. Um, just 50,000 50, words of just scrolling, um, it can feel like a pacing thing in a weird way. Like, is this chapter chapters never going to end? I mean, chapters are very important for pacing, chapter length. Yeah. Um, you can increase or decrease your pace in a work by chapter length. Um, sometimes even adding an additional 2,000 words to a chapter can um, can damage your pace. Or it can slow down your pace in a moment when you need it to. So you might have a 4,000-word chapter. The, the first four chapters of your book are four to 5,000 words apiece, and then chapter six is eight. And that's probably your your big build, and then you would go down to five or six thousand words to the end. Um, but if you wanted to increase your momentum, you would put a shorter chapter there instead of a longer one. So you could do four k, five k, four k, five k, and then three k. Yeah. Now, uh, you will see people, some people advocate for doing like 1,000-word chapters and then 6,000-word chapters for pacing. That is stupid advice. Don't listen to that. Yeah, that is really um, you If you want to increase your pace, you're, you're talking about shaving off your normal chapter length, making things a little bit tighter. And it's not just the chapter length. Your, your, your writing, when you're trying to increase your pace, should be brisker, too. So you're doing, you're doing lots of things. You're bringing things a little bit tighter, a little bit less exposition, a little less narrative. You're, you know, you're just either you're more more action beats, more more dialogue. You're kind of making things flow quickly and making things a tiny bit shorter, and it'll feel like the pace is. But the whole idea of just really highly variable chapter lengths just feels schizophrenic. Don't do it. Um, it's jarring to the reader to have 1,000, 1,000, 10,000, 1,000, 1,000, 500 words, 1,000. That is ridiculous. Um, right. And if somebody tells you them. that a chapter, as long as a chapter is, even if it's 20K, never listen to anything else they ever have to say about writing. Right. But then no they don't know shit. put something like that out. Um, That's but ridiculous. When you, 
when the thing is, the reader shouldn't notice that you're manipulating the page with chapter length. And if you're putting in a thousand word chapter, they're going to notice. It should be something. That's why it's subtle. You're changing. You're writing a little bit. You're making a little bit. You have this big action scene, and the chapter is a little a little bit shorter, like 500 words shorter than normal, or something like that, comparatively. And and it feels tight and action packed to them. And then they're anxious to go on to the next chapter. That is different than a thousand word chapter and you think that you're doing something with pace. You're not. All you're doing is jarring them. And anything jarring isn't helping your pace. That's pulling them out of the story, not keeping them in it. So it's actually completely counterproductive. Um some people will say there is there are whole blog articles about how to chapter. And um, one of the things that people say is just write your novel and chapter it later. I don't even know what to do with that advice. <laughs> so I, I've, ne- I've never done that in my life. I, I, I do the part thing. That's Sometimes a panther. Will, you know, That's a panther yeah, method. That, so, but I mean, I think work people who work for you. Yeah, if it does, if it does, if that does work for you, I mean, it's better to get the novel out and then figure out where your chapter breaks are. The thing is, if you want the story to have good flow, you're going to have to do some rewriting after you put those chapter breaks in, because you usually can't just. Some people may really write to a chapter rhythm; they just don't put the labels on. But odds are, you're going to throw your rhythm off when you put those chapters in. You're going to break where you don't want to break, or something where it doesn't feel natural. So. Just, I don't, I don't, that message just seems bizarre to me, but if it works, there's a lot, like people say there's a lot of different ways to do chapters. Um, Ellie mentioned, and there, this is, this is actually, I've seen this, this method, people talk about it. She mentioned that um, for her quantum bang, she, it was 50% of her chapters were blocked out and 50% of the chapters were added later. Um, so she got on a roll with a scene and stopped marking chapters until near the end. And sometimes that happens if you get really into it. And some people just work like that. It's like they check, go back and look at their chapter lengths. Um, like if they're writing what they think needs to be in a chapter, and, I'm, and then they go back and they check their chapters, and some chapters are 5K and some are 15, they're going to take those That's 15K chapters and yeah. they're going to have to put some structure to them. And that's and that's a fine method if that's what works for you. I mean, it's more important that you write than that you get chapters in, chapter headings in. But if you know, I've I've said this before, I'm sure some people are tired of hearing it, but it is the truth is that panthers have to do the same work that plotters do. They just do it later. You cannot like you know, plotters put down their character bios up front and Panthers, many panthers, not all, but many panthers will create them on the fly. You still have to write it down. You still have to create it. You just have to do it then, and then you have to make sure you're consistent. You know, plotters plot in um, a structure to their chapters. Panthers, if they put their chapters in later, they still have to go back then and edit in that structure. It's the same work. It's just done in a different place. So... Um, my issue comes in with people who pant and then they don't do any of the work. And it's really obvious when they don't do the work. Really, really, really honestly, really obvious. obvious. I can yeah, tell. It becomes, <laughs> yeah, you can just drag it right out into the street. <clears throat> and editors can tell when you're, when you're not on your game, when you're giving them something that you have not put the work in for.
You're not pulling a fast one on anybody. No, because you know, editor. That, I mean, uh, the thing is, if it's your, if you get to a line editor with this kind of thing, I would say that's kind of you know, like uncommon. But the acquisition editor is going to notice that your character's parents are alive and then dead and then alive again, <laughs> because you didn't bother to do a character bio and you didn't um, make sure your your biographical details were consistent. And they're going to notice, and they're going to go, "Why didn't, why didn't they fix, why didn't they catch this themselves?" It's kind of sloppy. And sometimes you only get one chance to make an impression on an editor. And once you've made that impression, you're stuck with it, for good or bad. We have a question up above from um, Edie, and I'm going to ask a clarifying question and wait for the answer. Um, the question was, what about dialogue? I'm having trouble writing dialogue. I think maybe because I don't feel like I'm getting a good balance between the dialogue and the non-dialogue. How do you choose what you tell via dialogue and what's told otherwise? Um, are you feel like you're not getting a balance in terms of not enough dialogue or too much? So while you're thinking about that, um, you can at least talk about the part of how do you tell what to tell via dialogue and what's told otherwise. Um, in most stories, if I'm relaying anything important, um, I'm going to want it said. Dialogue is more interesting than an explanation than uh, than exposition. Um, and your reader is less likely to skip dialogue, unless your dialogue is rife with irrelevance. Right. Um, I've I've seen this. I mean, I've seen this. Like I've read, I've read a few Teen Wolf stories where people get so caught up in writing styles being witty that there's no substance to the dialogue for long periods of time, and that's something you really have to balance out with a character who is kind of a chatterbox. Is is get, keeping them in getting their character voice where they're recognizable without boring your audience with. Banter is good, but when it crosses to the point where people are rolling their eyes and skimming, then you have the same thing with too much exposition. It's just irrelevance. So you want it to serve a purpose. Um, Let's see. I read something, um, or tried to read, I started reading something, where everything that was interesting was told in exposition, and the dialogue was only flirting. Not even great flirting, but the dialogue was all flirting. <laughs> and all the interesting stuff in the story was told in exposition. So basically, you, I was skipping it. It's a complete reverse reversal of what I usually do in a story, which is I tend to, if I'm getting a little bit bored with the exposition, I'm skipping down to the dialogue because I'm not getting anything out of the character, you know, mooning over the entire canon events. Um, and I go down to the next thing that seems like action or dialogue. Um, this was the opposite. The, the dialogue was nothing but awkward flirting to me. It read awkward. Um, and then everything interesting that was going on was happening in exposition. And it was just this weird exposition, but I don't, I don't usually see that. Um, so that was a case of where I just didn't, I wasn't interested in the dialogue at all. Uh, because also because it wasn't a relationship story, so all the awkward flirting was, was just so pointless. Um, 
but it's also dialogue that's repetitive is annoying. So, like, if you have to reveal something five or six times, really, you you only want to write that once, or maybe embellish on that a second time or something. You don't want to do the reveal. You ever Harry Potter fandom is like to me, it's like what sticks out for this particular sin is that like something easy revealed like you know Dumbledore's bad axe or something and it's revealed to six different people word for word practically six times and it's like oh my yeah. god just say there are ways I mean, to that, do that, that without one. doing that <laughs> yeah that's where you just say they revealed all the information they had about Dumbledore um to um to Kingsley Shacklebolt you know, as opposed to a 4,000-word scene where they tell everything that they had already told somebody else. Um, okay, so, so she says, so the issue is that there's not enough dialogue. Um, I think you need to set yourself a, um, a goal for... Um, somebody's work you admire go through a scene count their exposition paragraphs versus their dialogue tags and then (laughs) I do hate flashbacks here's here's something interesting though Um, I'm going to have several in my November story um uh, so I I hope I don't annoy myself. Um, for me, I often don't have enough exposition, and I'm aware of that. I prefer dialogue. I prefer movement in a scene, um, and exposition bores the shit out of me. I currently have six flashbacks planned for my quantum bank. My, I mean my. Um, my my rough trade. I can't guarantee I'm going to write them because <laughs> I do hate flashbacks. In fact, I can't even watch that show, um, How to Get Away with Murder, because of the flashbacks. And I was like, I can't. I can't watch this shit. And I was so mad because I was really looking forward to it. Because I love her. And this is a, but there are there are times when flashbacks work and there are times when they don't and it's all because i mean like did you you ever watched uh cold case yeah um i love flashbacks that was excellent the flashbacks completely worked in that series for me i had no problems with them at all no no no, um but other of it great series so it 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 really is depends upon it's like was that a lot of times i think what you're when we get irritated with a flashback is we're going because was that necessary do we need to have a flashback with something that happened 15 minutes ago? I mean, I literally, that's right? like my, right? my, my golden I, example for a flashback flashback is I'm reading a scene that starts and there's one sentence before a flashback to the thing that happened 15 minutes prior. 15 it minutes. No fucking sense. It makes no fucking sense. And that is a problem in um, fandom that just, it's overwhelming. It's like they're trying to have an interesting opening sentence, and so they have like an o- opening paragraph, and then they jump into this flashback that I guess would have been boring or something. I don't know. It's just it's such a bad idea 
to to write that way, but there are times when flashbacks um, work just really well. Um, but you don't, and it's when you don't even notice that you're you, when you aren't sitting there going, "Oh, a flashback," is when they're working. So I have a flashback in the search. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, I'm thinking. the city ship that was on earth and she's in orbit and she she flashes back to the moment when her relationship with her sentinel um became truly intimate when they were honest with each other um they were in the field in um the middle east and Anne um overreacted to a um a man sexually um advancing on Allison and freaked herself out and thought Allison was going to leave her. And so there's that whole scene in flashback. And then the flashback gets interrupted with O'Neill on the radio. And Allison shakes herself loose from that memory to, to focus on what's happening around her. So. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't, it, it didn't jump out at me as you used a flashback, but there it was. And that's it. When you blend your flashback in well, that's when they work. Is they flow in the narrative as opposed to labeling a flashback and then putting like you know four pages in italics. Don't do that. <laughs> Please don't. And do if that. anybody tells you you need to italicize your flashbacks, no. Tell them to kiss Get, my stop ass. Going into the, stop going into that writers group and paying attention to them. <laughs> right. Oh, I just italicized my 7,000-word flashback. (laughs) If you need a 7,000-word flashback, you are starting your story in the wrong place. Well, actually, Edie, I would say that um, um, doing all dialogue isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you struggle with writing dialogue, writing your whole story in dialogue isn't necessarily a bad idea. And then you have a big edit where you figure out what you can not don't need to do in dialogue. And that's one of those times where this is a case of where you're kind of really dedicating time to improving your craft as opposed to dedicating time to getting a story done. Because if you write it almost like a script format and then you go in and you go, okay, this is just, this, there's no substance to that bit. I'm going to just do a, you know, a couple sentences explaining that and, and then put in your, um, your descriptive beats or your dialogue tags. I mean, just whatever, whatever it is you need to do to start flushing it out. But as an exercise, if you struggle with writing dialogue, um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing is to just bang out the whole thing and dialogue and make it be dialogue heavy and then figure out how to cut that down. That is exactly what it is, Claire. Claire, speaking of Claire, I was on Facebook uh, browsing and I hit your art it's beautiful your art is beautiful Chestnut Nolan did beautiful. an excellent job for you awesome I mean it made me kind of teary kind of weepy it it, it, it looks so it sad I, it doesn't hurt miles too much <laughs> don't do too much torture of the wooby baby yeah it's amazing it's, it's a great job fantastic is that for rough trade 
Because if it is, you should go put it in the album for Rough Trade. Go over to the writer's table, and you'll see, if you go into photos, you'll see a Rough Trade album, and you can add it to um, the rest of the art. Look at all the I made I made an album for Rough Trade art. And you guys can put past projects in there, too, not just current ones. So feel free to just load it up. But when it comes, but when it comes to, I don't think we, I've given a really good answer to what. I'll try to give a more concrete answer to what kind of things, how you decide what to write in dialogue and whatnot. You may not, have, you may not have read it, so it might be a lousy example. But um, my first project for Rough Trade in the Summer was Sun for the Man, and one of the things that blew my um, word count out was the dialogue. Um, and it's because when I started writing the very practically the first scene, not exactly the first scene, but damn close. I had this, I had originally planned to have a quick exposition, quick probably being about 500 words, um, explaining the whole situation with how Patrick and, and his sons came online when someone tried to kidnap Matthew and blah, 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 blah. So it, it, that, didn't, that wasn't working. I mean, that information is really critical. Um, and I didn't want to put something that critical in an exposition block. So I decided to write it as a conversation where Tony could, because it wasn't just, it was, it's not just that it's more interesting to hear, see it in dialogue is when it's blocked out that way. And the information is coming in real time in that, in that way, Tony can react to it as it's being revealed and his reactions and thoughts, um, are then spread out over the dialogue rather than a blob of information and then a blob of introspection, um, which isn't interesting to read. What, so I made the decision that that information that was really critical it was, and, that, and that Tony was going to have a reaction to, it was more interesting to put that in a dialogue block even though it was going to blow my word count and I think that scene, I want to say it was like 4,000 words, which is not, even when I decided to switch it to, to dialogue from exposition, I thought it would come in about half that. So, and I think that was the right choice for the story because I wouldn't want okay. to start the story with a giant blob of exposition and then a bunch of introspection. Um, because the other thing that people tend to do a lot is when they give, give a bunch of exposition is then they have a bunch of introspection. And the other thing I find really tedious to read is characters musing for thousands and thousands of words over things that have happened. Um, either say it or do it. That's not, that's another form of tell, not show is just pondering their reactions. It's just kind of, if for me it's kind of sleep-inducing, it's something else I skip because if I'm not getting their reactions through the actions and some quick stuff related, if, if you need 2,000 words to explain how they're feeling, then something's not, something's not, not going right. Um, but when dialogue is, doesn't serve a purpose, when it's just people talking and it's not advancing the story, then it, probably doing that bit in dialogue wasn't like, the hi, how are you, have a seat, can I get you tea? That can be fine a little bit to transition into a conversation, but if you've got multiple pages of how have you been that doesn't serve your story, that's the same thing as um, exposition that isn't moving your story forward. It's pointless. 
boring. and boring and people are moving on. So the question is, does it serve your story? Um, so it's not, I, I don't think it's like you need to necessarily find a balance because sometimes the story is great that has almost no dialogue in it at all. And sometimes the story is almost entirely dialogue. So it depends upon what is moving the story for, what the story needs. So a little bit trial and error and being able to look at your work critically and doing some experiments that might not. I I talk to a lot of people who shy away from trying things that aren't going to result in a story posted. Um, like it's going to be wasted effort or something. And if you're learning something, it's no nothing you write is ever wasted because you always learn something from it. So just keep doing. Keep trying it. And always, always read your dialogue out loud, especially when you're trying to learn how to write dialogue. You need to read it. Listen to people talk. Um, watch. Don't watch. Listen to TV shows and movies. Um, put something on, um, uh, like on Netflix, and um, minimize the browser, and just listen to the movie. Listen to the rhythm of the actors moving through these scenes. Um, listen to the emotion in their voice. Listen to them tell you a story with just their voice. Because really, when it boils down to it, when you're reading a book, that's all you've got. And the ability to... Um, established tone and um, is is really important when you're writing dialogue and uh, you know I, I think every writer has weaknesses and strengths and I do think that sh- one of my biggest strengths is dialogue um, but I got it through listening and sometimes I'll go downstairs to my ma- husband's man cave and um just sit TV while I'm reading or writing or doing whatever I'm doing just for background noise um, or even just his background noise because um, it helps. It, it, it helps to listen to people talk, to to listen to the, in, the inflection. Is that, is that how you said that? The, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the tone of their voice, the words they use, the rhythm that they speak in. And you can – it's really interesting to just listen to movies and TV shows, especially if you've seen them before. If you strip out all the visual and you just have their voice, I think it would really be helpful to you. Because without the visual, visual, you have no exposition in a movie. The exposition in a movie is the visuals that you're given. Um, so without that, all you have is their dialogue. And I think it would be very beneficial if you tried that out as a thought experiment. And try out various methods of doing that. You can use the big short prompts to do that. Um, that way you're not investing a great deal of time in, into various experiments um, with POV, with exposition, with dialogue. You know, just exploring your mechanics in a short form would be very beneficial. And also, it's really fun to have a whole bunch of little things that you finished and you can say, I'm done, That the end. <laughs> that's finished yeah that is really nice with the big short is you can just have a lot of little finished stories and you you write it you post it you move on also 
find a writer who you really like the balance of dialogue and exposition, maybe that's writing a similar type of story that you are, because story type makes a difference. Um, if you're writing a 2,000-word short, that is completely different. The dialogue narrative, the di- narrative and dialogue balance is completely different in a short story versus an epic. Um, you can't afford you know, 2,000 words of exposition anywhere in a short story. So that balance of, if, you, if you're planning to write 50,000 words, go find some, in, in, in let's say it's a contemporary romance, go find somebody who's written 50,000 words in a contemporary romance that you really f- like the balance of dialogue and narrative. And really pick apart what they've done and where they have used dialogue and where they have not, and what works about that for you, and try to emulate it. Emulating somebody's skill is not the same thing as, as copying their story. So there's nothing wrong with, with trying to do something like that. Um, if you're like reading a lot of people who do a lot of exposition and very little dialogue, um, that could also come through in your own writing. So... Which is how shit like that one-sided conversation um, infects you. I've got one. I've got a fucking one-sided conversation that's in the fucking POV character. I found it and ties it bind, and I, I, I damn near had a conniption. I'd have lost my mind. I'd have been like, look, I'd have been like, look what you've done to me, NCIS fandom. Look at what you have done. Done. You brought me to Vegas and made me a whore. <laughs> Also, one of the things that is helpful when you are reading out um, when you are reading your dialogue, you've you got to act it a little bit. You've got to make sure you're getting the t- intonation that you want the character, the, the, the audience to get. And if you're having to, like you're trying to express exasperation and you've just got a sentence um, and you and it's coming out flat, it might not be the dialogue. It might be that you need some kind of descriptive beat. Like if you're trying to express annoyance, like you could just go, you know, that, comma, close quote, he took a deep breath, his hand, his, you know, his fist clenched, open quote, is not what I'm talking about, you know, and put not in italics. So you, you need to, if your dialogue is dependent you know, understanding it is dependent on the way it's said. You're going to have to craft that into your dialogue tags or your the, the descriptive beats around your dialogue. And just that's where it helps to read it. And if it's sounding flat because it, it lacks intonation or whatever, sometimes you need more words because stories are different than scripts. They give they can give an actor three words that would sound really choppy in a story and the actor puts all of that in there. In a story, the writer has to put in feeling in a, in a three-word sentence with body Exactly, and that's and, why it'd be really good to, you know, listen to actors doing that in scenes without looking at them right so here there um one of the things i think i do really well is capturing character voice and keeping character voices very distinct 
so, and that's one of the things I do is I will do just listen. I'll just put it on and just listen. And I'll be very careful about word choice. Now, sometimes that will bleed when I'm doing a rough draft. I'll get bleed over. Like I'll have, a, you know, I'll be in a character's point of view who uses words that, you know, my main character would never use. And then I have to, I fix that in the editing. But usually I'm really good about channeling the, the voice of the character that I'm trying to. So, but that comes, that comes from a lot of time listening and a lot of time of reading my own work out loud. Like I was on the stage. It's kind of ridiculous. I would never want to get caught. I got caught. I'm in my office with the door shut. My husband is supposed to be at work. I am working through a scene and it's not working the way I want to. So I'm up and I'm moving around. I'm I'm doing both parts of the conversation. I'm in tears because of the emotional content of the scene. And I turn around and there's my husband standing in the doorway. He he just he just held up his hand and shut the door and and uh, <laughs> I don't you want to know what's going on here? <laughs> as worse as I had music playing, so when I went down to the kitchen, he's like, "Were you just lip syncing in your office?" And I'm like, "That would actually have been less embarrassing." <laughs> I was Let me get my, my hairbrush. Sorry, motherfucker, go away. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my hairbrush. That that would actually be less embarrassing than what I was really doing. <clears throat> he said, "I've had, you I've were had people think I'm on I was the like, phone." It's upsetting. <laughs> I upset myself. <laughs> I've had people think I was on the phone having a fight with somebody when I've been reading like you know really expressive dialogue or when somebody's really angry. Um, so, yeah, but it's just you just just do it. Just I gotta 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 go with Nike on this one. Just do it. Just keep reading it out. Keep figuring out where to. And honestly, if you are taking big pauses when you're reading, if you're reading a line of dialogue and you're taking a big pause, and you're kind of like huffing and putting your hands on your hips to get the action to get that action right, but you didn't write those big huffs and the hands on the hips. Go back to your story and input the huff and the hands on the hips because dialogue can be very flat if you don't you don't want to put so much that it obstructs it, but you need to show the inflection without saying he was mad because that's telling not I've done that I've done that I've done the whole huffing and being angry with the hands on the hips, and it wasn't any none of that was there. That was just because I knew that's how that character was feeling. But it wasn't what was written on the page. Okay, does anybody else have any questions? Edie said that helped her, so I'm so glad that that helped. But yeah, lock the door if you're going to do that. Yeah. Or put and put your or you can always put your headphones on so it looks like you're on the phone. Um 
but yeah, I would much have preferred if he have walked in on me lip syncing to No Doubt. That would have been um, much better than than him walking in on me having a conversation with two parts by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Her one man Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, yeah. Lock the door. So, but, but yeah. I honestly err uh, on the side of having too little exposition. One, because I hate it. And two, because I think that um, allowing myself too much exposition puts me in a position to be telling instead of showing. Got to be careful with that because showing is fun and entertaining and telling is boring. As long as the story is comprehensible, I mean, the, the, the only the only way that Kira's method could go awry is if you just leave too much out. People can't figure out what the fuck you're talking about. But she doesn't right. do that. Yeah. So, but I have read stories that are like that. They are so, they are so dedicated to dialogue that you're like, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know who's in the room. I don't even know if they're in a room. <laughs> are they on Mars? No. I, I, I have no, no idea. And there's, and it's not like you have two choices. It's not like it's exposition or dialogue. Okay, there's action. There's description. Isn't isn't actually really exposition unless you go completely nuts with it. Um, if you're setting the scene, like you're describing the scene to a degree, like you know they walked into Vance's office, that's not exposition. Okay, um, so it, it's not one or the other. You, you don't need to cut everything out to have dialogue. And I see people go that, you know, I don't want any exposition. And saying they're walking into Vance's office is technically a short action beat. So don't <laughs> don't feel like you have to – People, this is what I see people do is they go to extremes. And you got to find a balance that is true to your author voice where your story is still understandable. Don't go – I mean, that. I actually hate the all dialogue thing almost more than the all-exposition thing. Because I just feel lost in a way that I don't feel lost in, a, in an all-exposition story. I've read stories that were all-exposition, and they may have been boring after a point, but I could follow what was going on. When it's just dialogue, practically, and very little description or scene setting, and sometimes not even you can't even tell who is speaking, I just feel confused. And I don't like feeling... I don't like my sick to make me feel stupid. <laughs> That's how I feel. Right? People recommend stories to me that were like that. And I'm like, am I the dumb bunny that I'm the one who does not understand what the fuck is going on in the story? And it's not like I skip something because there's nothing to skip. There's no exposition that I'm skimming past. So I was like, uh, sometimes I feel, I'm not smart enough for the story. I'm just lost. You know, I mentioned I actually but, said that to somebody. So I don't think I don't think I'm far enough for the story. I, I I don't understand what the hell is going on. They said, "Oh well, you, it, it'll all clear by the end." But this story is two hundred thousand words. At what point does it become clear? And I said, "Well, it's a little bit confusing up front, but it gets better about halfway through." I'm like, "No, I'm not putting a hundred thousand words of confusion on my day." Nope, not gonna do it. <laughs> Just not gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and your author voice, the more you write, Edie, the more your author voice will develop. Um, that's why you just got to figure out. Often your author voice will, in some fashion, wind up being, to some degree, what you like to read. Like the stuff that you really, really just, you don't even notice the balance of dialogue and exposition because you're just pulled into it. That's kind of... It becomes, uh, the more you read, the more you write, the better you will be. Um, reading really good writing is kind of like, what's that term when you soak up knowledge without really trying? Is it osmosis? Os- osmosis, yeah. It, if you're reading a really good writer, you can pick up um, lots of things with structure, um, with dialogue mechanics, just through osmosis, just just by just by exposing yourself to to really good writing. The other side of that is is you can also pick up stupidly bad habits by reading really bad writing. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, the funny thing is, you notice, like let's say you notice the one sided phone conversation, or you notice the bizarre chapter breaks, the, the scene breaks that people use, or whatever you you notice them and you decide to do them. Well, the thing is, you shouldn't be noticing that stuff. <laughs> The fact that you noticed it, it means it's a problem. A big one. That kind of stuff, things like those kinds of like gimmicks, you notice gimmicks, and that's typically, gimmicks are typically not a good idea. Like sometimes they work, but but like the all lowercase letter thing, that pretty much worked for E. Cummings, and then everybody else needed to stop. Collaborate and listen. Or was it in the name of love? So just, hmm, yeah, if you're noticing <laughs> someone's gimmick, if you're noticing their gimmick, don't replicate it because gimmicks, the fact that it's noticeable means it's probably, probably not the best craft in the world. I can't say that. It's not a 100% statement, but I tend to find the things that jump out at you. If there's nothing in when it comes to story structure that should leap out at you because that's pulling you away from the story. And that's never, ever the goal. I mean, if you're reading a story and you actually like feel like you want to go back and check how many pages that chapter was, like, like reading a book. I mean, I've, had, I've had this where I've been reading a book. Um, you, usually it's a self-pub book on Amazon that I didn't know was self-pubbed. Um, and I get to the end of a chapter and I go, wait a minute. And I go thumbing back to see how long that chapter was. That actually isn't a good thing. <laughs> It is never a good thing when your reader is pausing and going, wait a minute, didn't this chapter just start two pages ago? How can I have done another one? Because they're, that means they're no longer reading and longer in your story. They're out at your chapter length. Anybody else have questions? I could rant about chapter length all night, unfortunately. It's a real big pet peeve. <laughs> especially since there are people out there dispensing the advice. Yeah, especially the people out there dispensing the advice that 30,000 chap- word chapters and 1,000 word chapters can live in the same story. No. That's a big fat no.
I don't think anybody else has questions. Whatever shall we do? Mm. You know, you don't have to just ask craft questions. You can ask falling action. Other. Yeah, you can ask other questions too. Um, <laughs> falling action. We were talking about falling action on the, the other day, weren't we? Sort of. Yeah. Kind of indirectly. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in my fallen action um, for my quantum bang. I did my big scene. I did my big angsty scene. Um, or my big action scene for the end. Um, so now I'm I'm in cleanup. So I've got maybe I don't know three thousand words left, maybe four. Wow! Holy crap! Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah sometimes falling action can be. I I I have been guilty of very steep falling action um, in the past, um, like literally like a paragraph. Um, and that's usually when sex is the climax. <laughs> it's right. like literally we, we get we, we clean up and there's some cuddling and then the story's over. Um, but when it comes to um, this happened this happened to Azure too. And then after she mentioned something about it, um, yes, thank you, Ellie. <laughs> she wants to keep working the sheet. I'm making note of your question while we talk about falling action. Um, This happened to Azure, and then I was reading a story that had something very similar, and it basically was there's all of these plot elements that are introduced. I mean, a ton of plot elements. I mean, it is what is driving. And then the minute the characters get together, the story was abruptly over and um, slamming up against a wall, and nothing is resolved. Like, all of this plot that has been un- that has been introduced all this conflict, all this angst, none of it's resolved, the story is over, and the author says the story is is finished, um, and there shan't be a sequel. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, there will be a sequel in my head, <laughs> and maybe on I'm, my hard I'm writing, drive. <laughs> I'm writing a sequel right now. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I read her what she described was a little bit more abrupt than what I ran into, which was, which was basically, it's like this very intricate plot was a plot device to bring the two main characters together, which is fine. Sometimes you do have an intricate plot device that is, but they didn't wrap up their intricate plot device. They just left it hanging. Um, And it did feel like running into a wall at the end of that story, because yes, you've had the climax in a very literal way, but there was, the falling action, that kind of a denouement is where you wrap in, you bring in, and you wrap up to some degree. You don't have to tie a bow on a story. But, you know, if they're working on a, on a case about, a, like, a missing person, or and I'm making shit up here, folks. If somebody's working on a case about a missing person, and they are inches from rescuing this kidnapped kid, and they finally get together and have sex, and the story's over, but they don't actually rescue the kid, okay, that's a big loose end. It is not a little <laughs> loose end. That the audience can what infer what's going kid? on. Part of your falling action is okay. They're together. Yay! Climax. They get the kids. They bring them home. They get the kid back to their parents. Yay! Yeah, happy ending. And you don't need to wrap up every little detail, but you need to wrap up the big ones, especially if you, you know I me, mean, just like blah, blah, blah. So, 
and I kind of was reading this story, and I kind of wanted to go like apologize if I have ever ended a story too abruptly because it was so, it was such a uh, kind of experience. Um, see, yeah, Steve fault me in that. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes steep falls do work. Uh, you can leave a little dangle for a sequel if you ever want to pick a sequel back up. But I think if you're going to have a steep falling action, you need to have addressed all of your major plot points before you get there. Um, because otherwise you're going to leave your reader going, what? Fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, so falling action, yeah, you can have, I mean, if you look at the narrative arc that, like, they show, I want to say it's, like, on Wikipedia, they show, like, the climax being, like, at the top of a bell curve or something, which mm-hmm. implies you have as much falling action as you have rising action, which isn't true. It's not even remotely true. So some stories, um, so... They talk about the penultimate chapter, like in a book. Um, is the penultimate chapter is the second to the last, and the reason why that is always such a big deal is because that's usually where the climax occurred. Not always, but usually. So, your climax more often than not would occur in the second to the last chapter, and then you have like a chapter of falling action. Well, if you've got a twenty-chapter book, that's a lot of rising action to falling action. So, you know, but sometimes it's just there's nothing left. Sometimes if if falling action, keeping more falling action means that you're just, you know, making things up that you're just kind of doing slice of life stuff to keep the story going so you have a little bit more falling action, that's not the goal of falling action at all. My my in my quantum bang um, takes place in the middle of the last chapter. Um, and the last half of the last chapter is the falling action. And my stories are more often than not the climax is in the last chapter. But it's a more traditional structure would be that they're in the second to the last chapter. Um, but not necessarily for romances. I will say that not, it's not uncommon for a romance to have the at climax in the last chapter. Right. Followed by falling out slash sex. Yeah. Or an I it, love it, you in a wedding. Also, yeah. It, it's just, there's a little bit, that's a little bit genre specific. It can change where traditionally the fall, the climax is. But I think as long as you have some falling action, you're, you're, you're okay. Um, what you don't want is your audience to feel like they've hit a wall. And it, cause that's not down. That's just, that's just a hard stop. Um, a little bit of a rise in the action isn't a problem, but what you don't want to start doing is introducing new plot points um, and where people are thinking is going to be a next. Because sometimes to wrap things up, you do come up a little bit, don't want it to actually start to rise. You kind of want to keep it falling to maybe plateauing a little bit. If people are starting to get amped up again, they're going to then feel like they've hit a wall. So steep is better than leaving people feeling, you know, 
But call it a climax for a reason, right? Um, you don't want them to start feeling like they, they're ready for a climax again. That's like leaving people unsatisfied. <laughs> That's just rude. <laughs> don't do it. It's worse than a cock block. Mm. Um, so I have to read Ellie's question. <laughs> okay. Oh, because I don't think she intended this the way it sounds. Okay. <laughs> she asked about structure of the sex scene, and she says, how much dialogue should there be? And then the next line says, I will ask about sex if it keeps you away from the sheep. <laughs> we aren't doing that kind of stuff with the sheep. <laughs> We're feeding they the are naked, so they're not naked. <laughs> they are naked, naked, but I'm not... They're, what we're doing with the cows naked and is a lot more unfortunate. <laughs> the cows are deeply unfortunate, but the sheep are naked and afraid. Yeah, so you want to feed them quickly so their their wool grows back so you don't feel like a horrible human being, as opposed to what's happening with the cows, which makes me feel like I'm invading their privacy. Let's just say that there is automatic milking with the cows. If you've ever watched how From it's made. From the utter point of view. <laughs> From the back end. It's from the back. The back yes. It's from the, the back. back. You see them eating from the front. They turn around when they're ready to be milked. And it's like, oh, <laughs> Jesus. All of okay. I mean, it's, it's just deeply unfortunate. So there was a question about, uh, the, the question was about how much dialogue, the structure of sex scene, how much dialogue should there be? Um Man, every sex scene I've ever written has been kind of different in this regard. It, it really is kind of an organic, what does this scene need? I have read sex scenes that were hugely, like 80% dialogue, that were really, really good. Usually I find too much talking in sex scenes. It's like, would you shut up and fuck? But, <laughs> <laughs> but there was, I mean, there's this... this um, there's an X-Files writer who wrote this um, really memorable sex scene. It's amazing. This sticks out to me like 20 years later um, where Mulder gets um, – the more excited he gets, the more he starts reciting pointless facts. So there's a ton of dialogue where he just starts reciting random animal facts about this, that, or the other, this thing about hedgehogs and that thing about alligators or whatever. And, and you know, his sex partners would be like, like I, I'm tempted. I knew you'd be chatty, but I'm tempted to gag you. And it's just the more he just loses all brain-to-mouth filter and what comes out is trivia. <laughs> it was That's his, actually the hilarious. The sex scene was hot, and it was hilarious. So it was kind of long, longer than I usually would like in a sex scene, um, because there's all of this dialogue that was cracking me up, and then all this really hot sex. So I've never written a sex scene like that in my life, um, where there's that much talking. But, you know, I've written sex scenes that were long, edging towards 2,000 words, but that was more because there's a lot of emotional content um, and still not a lot of talking. Um, sometimes I think from a talking perspective, the sex scene I put at the end of stick around had some of the most talking, but that was because I, mean, I was like, like Dom was being like a phone sex operator in that one. Um, 
But usually I don't put a ton of dialogue in sex. Not I don't personally. It's not where I usually – that's not my comfort zone. But it just – it it comes out the way it comes out, right? <laughs> yeah. I never plan that kind of stuff. The sex scene is what it is when it's done. I'm like, okay, there it is. Okay, so if – it's easier to talk about, what do you say it's easier to talk about things not to do in sex scenes and what to do? <laughs> yeah. The, don't have your character say shit at, at any point during a sex scene. Ever. I don't care where Ever. the dick is going. Um, don't, 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 don't say it. it, it it's not sexy. But what I would say about um, dialogue in sex scenes, um, you look at the outside of your sex scene. Um, look at it from the outside and ask yourself, what do you want to accomplish in this sex scene? Is it, um, is it furthering the intimacy of your relationship? Is it padding your word count? <laughs> Cause that's perfectly acceptable in certain situations, professional ones where you have to meet a workout. <laughs> um, Especially if you're writing erotica. Right. A little more dick ain't gonna hurt anything. So anyways, um, What's the intimacy level that you're trying to reach? Um, how are your characters communicating? How are they coming into this convert uh, this um, this sex scene? Were they mad at each other? Are they desperate for each other? Um, you know, average everyday couple sex with, hey, I think we need eggs. <laughs> Conversation happening. Um, you know, and it all this plays in when you're structuring your sex scene, you need to take into account your characters. Um, I would never write a sex scene the same way for John and Rodney that I would for Draco and Harry. Because your characterization is just as important in a sex scene as it is anywhere else um, in your story. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense to me. You can't use the same. It's not a template. Yeah. I mean, you can be. You can very chatty. You can be. Yeah, but you can be surprising with a character. Like you could like throw in something surprising. Okay, so like it's not wouldn't be at all surprising to have um, like Tony Denozo be good at dirty talk. Okay. But it might be surprising that, like, say, Spencer Reed is particularly adept at it. But how you bring that in could be, like, he's just got a filthy mouth in the bedroom. And it could be really an interesting kind of, like, whoa um, on that character. But in general, you want to make sure that what you, the, the language that's happening in the bedroom isn't, isn't a jarringly making people question the characterization. Yeah, I don't see Gibbs talking. Him being Gibbs being chatty in bed is I've seen I've seen stories of that happens, and it always is a little bit of a what? <laughs> I don't see him. I, I think, see him becoming talking less, well, not more. I think um, Gibbs would be very bossy in bed. Yeah. Um, I think Mark Harmon would be filthy, <laughs> and there is a difference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, less is possible. (laughs) Um, 
but yeah, it's it all depends upon the the character. I mean, I just this is one of those things. Other than I don't think I've ever really, I don't never not ever, but I usually don't put a lot of planning into the sex scene. I figure out there's going to be a sex scene here, and then I let it kind of just happen organically as I'm writing, based upon because the thing is, if you plan it, it may not actually fit the emotional tone of your story at that point. Um. Now, sometimes you know that there's going to be a big emotional thing, like they're going out to fight a battle or they may die. And so they have, you know, and, and so you, your notes for your, your scene, it's going to be something like, you know, they're about to die. They're about, and they've got 10 minutes. They're about to have some really hurried, you know, please survive this sex. Okay. So you can kind of note what the tone is you think is going to be when you get there. But usually I just kind of let that kind of thing flow. Um I don't think you're I spot out on really. with your characterization from the beginning. By the yeah. time you get to heavy scenes like sex scenes or um, big reveals, it will be a very organic thing that you do. But you got to get your head in the game for your characterization on the first page. And sticking to a plan, this is where if you're trying to stick to a plan... But they talk about we've had those, you know, no writings, no plot survives engagement with the writing process. If you're trying too hard to stick to a plan, like and you've planned what your sex scene's gonna be like and you get there and it doesn't fit, you can stall yourself right out. And you may even decide the sex doesn't fit. Like, you know, according to Hermione Granger, it's not that they, they didn't have sex, it's that, you know, none it's of not us even were old I didn't write be, sex. I even yeah, wrote it. None of us I, we just weren't supposed to be looking in that particular bedroom. So um, sometimes it just doesn't fit in the story. Yeah, sometimes you do fade to black. And sometimes that's the right choice in for some characters, depending upon the emotional tone or whatever. Um, I, I can think of stories where sex would have been sex. The sex actually comes off as a little bit jarring because it's way off of the tone of the story, but. Just that's why you need to give yourself room with sex scenes when you get there is to let them happen how they fit at that moment with where the characters are. That said, don't keep track of shoes and socks unless for some reason a shoe is really important. It is so boring to read a sex scene where every article of clothing is accounted for in its removal. <laughs> Because the you'll forget, shoe. and then you have a reader go, you know, he didn't take off his left sock. <laughs> it I mean, really stuck out to me. Yeah. And it's one thing to say that somebody shimmied out of their jeans. That's fine, whatever, right, and pulled off their T-shirt. But when you start talking, he pulled off his tie, he pulled off his left shoe, he pulled off his right shoe, he took off his socks, he, you know, put them in the hamper. It's like, are, are they having sex or what's going on? Um as much as possible, avoid left and right, using the words left and right. You don't need to specify that the left hand is doing something versus the right hand. You know there's two hands. When you start getting into left and right hands, you're, you're creating a visual for your reader that, that they actually don't know and you could, they don't need to know, and you could contradict yourself. It's very easy to contradict yourself when there's multiple people in bed and you're talking about left and right hands and left and right legs. Just his hand, his other hand, that is sufficient. People will supply the image that makes sense to them. 
And the minute you contradict yourself, and I've seen people do it all the time about what the left hand is doing when the left hand is already busy. And people in professional works too. It's like I'm reading something, you know, I read about somebody's left hand is, you know, the two fingers of some guy's left hand is ass, and the next thing they're in his hair. I'm like, uh, whoa. (laughs) This is why you shouldn't keep track of left and right, because I wouldn't have even made that leap if it had just been two fingers in the ass and fingers clenching in the hair, because people have got two fucking hands. Um, yes, unless it's a striptease, but I would say 90% of stripteases I have read in stories are boring as fuck. So I would agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even in movies, to, the best striptease ever was in um, True Lies. And that's because it was funny. Because she fell? <laughs> And because he dropped his recorder and was having to keep track of... It was was like, help you ask my wife? (laughs) It wasn't wasn't the clothes coming off that was the funny part, the fun part of that scene. So I have read them where they're done well, but they aren't focused on... It isn't a literal accounting of left, right, left sock, right sock, left shoe, right shoe. It's kind of more of a, you know... When he bent over to remove his shoes, you know, he shimmied his ass or something like that. But that is focusing on the sex part of it, using the removal of clothing as a vehicle, as opposed to he took off his left chassis, which is just who cares. So, um, but I, I, I cannot advise people enough to start, start avoiding this left hand, right hand, left foot, left leg, right leg thing in stories because it gets you in trouble. So much trouble. <laughs> it's not a bad idea to have some some, some little dolls that you can. Um, if you're not comfortable, I just I don't even bother with dolls anymore. I just go straight to find a, some porn that has the visual right. that I need so I can describe it. But um, I used to have some really understanding friends who would um, be my. Um, visual aids when I was trying to work out a position I was like I'm trying to decide if this is plausible and they would just like get all up in it (laughs) okay so they've gotten all they've got is an ottoman and a chair and I want this to happen can it work um fortunately they will get back to you in about 15 minutes (laughs) (laughs) we shall report back with the results one of the well, they would they would just I would just sit there and take notes. They weren't even you know they would like completely <laughs> act this out for me. And there was one time um, I was checking a flexibility thing. I did have one friend who was really really flexible, and um, I was like I'm trying to find. And she goes, well, I think it would work, but I couldn't do it in jeans. So she just shimmies right out of her jeans and flops back on this cassette couch. She's like, yeah, I could definitely get my legs there. <laughs> like I've got the best friends. <laughs> I would say, if I think about the best people who write really great sex scenes, that in general their sex scenes for me, to my preference, are not very long. Um, my longest sex scenes are probably in Ties That Bind, and that's because there's a lot more going on than actual penetration. Yeah, that's, but that's a whole, literally a whole scene, um, not just sex. So, right. Um, but, I mean, your sex scenes tend to run... Um, 
I, Addie, I'm just guessing. I haven't liked that, that word counted your sex scenes, but I would guess that your average sex scene is about 500 words. 500 to 1,000, yeah. Uh, I would agree. Okay. So, um, and that's that's in my comfort zone for what I like to read. Now, I get a 5,000-word sex scene. I'm usually miserable with it. I'm usually skipping a lot personally. But like I said, I got, I've got friends who just dig that really emotionally overwrought, super detailed sex scenes. And usually they're that long because they're emotionally overwrought. Um, I just can't. But usually when I get a story that's got one of those in it, I just send her the link and go, this has got a sex scene I'll really enjoy. <laughs> Here you go. Have fun. And I just skip it. And, you know, because if I'm enjoying the story, I don't care if the sex is bad. I just move on. <laughs> just move on. I mean, bad to my taste. Okay, folks, that's just a strictly a preference thing. I do like them under a thousand words. Xtube is free. Um, be careful uh, with Xtube. Don't uh, create an account or log in or anything because you'll get spammed. Um, I found out that's the hard way. Yeah, use the um, only use the free videos that you can get for non-subscribers, and you do it in incognito mode. That way, they can't write cookies to your system, and you know nothing's being cached, and you won't wind up with any kind of bizarreness that's lurking around in your cache files or anything like that. So, go into incognito mode in, in Chrome or whatever to go out there. Um, yeah, just. Careful, careful, careful. You you know, honestly, I think it's best to set up an email account you don't use for anything else but questionable sites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, this thing is, if, hmm, I always want to mention this because it came up with somebody recently. You don't have to write sex scenes unless it's what you want to do. Um, I think that there's this expectation, especially I think almost more in the slash community than there, than there is um, in, in other types of writing that there's going to be graphic sex in stories where there's a pairing. You don't have to do that. Don't let anybody pressure you to write sex scenes if it's not what you want to do. Even if you think your story would be better for it, if it's not what you want to do, don't do it. Agreed. You shouldn't ever... You don't. I shouldn't ever feel like you have to write. Write. If you're in a, I mean, getting out of your comfort zone might be to. I mean, you could try it. Try it. But if you don't like it, don't do it. Um, you shouldn't feel pressured to do that. Um, it, you know, it, writing, trying to write sex scenes if you're if it's not your comfort zone is like could be like trying a different genre or trying writing in a different type of point of view, writing first person. It's something you may try, find you don't like, and move on. But there's this funny thing. If we try writing first person and we don't like it, no one says anything. No one gets judgy about the fact that we didn't like writing in first person. But for some reason, people can get really obnoxious if you try writing sex scenes and it's, you're not comfortable with it and you don't want to do it. They can be like, well, this just be better with sex. Well, they don't get to make that call. If and you, you would it, be better if you were polite and thankful. <laughs> yeah, you'd be better if you weren't talking. So you'd be if, great if you were grateful. <laughs> if it's not what you want to do, even if you think your story would be better for it, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. 
You should never feel like you're forcing yourself. If you get to the sex and you stall out and you can't go any further, and I've talked to writers this happens to, oh, I'm stalled out at the sex scene. Don't stall out at the sex scene. I mean, if it's, that makes you yeah, that miserable, don't write it. Black. Now, see, yeah, I wrote you the sex scene for recording Hermione Granger, and um, it was, frankly, the most awkward, terrible sex I've ever written. I I was like, 13-year-old me wrote better sex than this. <laughs> what is this? And then I realized that the structure I'd given Hermione's character, it just didn't lean itself to um, – there was, there was just no place in that story for um, explicit sex. Some characters you just don't want to know. It's like you just like, okay – it just felt like none of my business, and 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 the sex scene was was uh, terrible. So I, I so I pulled it out, and it was much better. But there can be weird expectations around sex. Um, yeah, I had several people comment on it, and I was like, "Don't read it." I have a few stories that have had that have no sex, and people comment on it from time to time. Like, well, will there be a sequel where we get to see them having sex? Nope. Not for that purpose, no. There might be a sequel, but there's not going to be a purpose just so that you can see them having sex. You warrior, what's the matter with you? You weirdo. <laughs> but yeah, you should definitely do you. You do you. And um, do what's comfortable for you. Um, test your boundaries. Create expectations for yourself. But don't torture yourself. Yeah. There's a big difference between... Uh, testing your own boundaries and abusing yourself. So don't, you know, life's stressful enough. Don't don't fuck yourself up, you know, so. And ask yourself why you want to do it. If you want to write, learn to write sexy because you want to do it, and that's it's something you want. Like maybe you really want to, you know, be able to write in the erotica market or whatever, or at least have, a sex scene to write maybe even a contemporary romance if you're pushing yourself for that reason because it's something you want and you're just not comfortable well that's a different discussion than you're doing it because people expect it and if the only answer for the reason why you're writing a sex scene is because people expect it or they bitch about it when it's not there then that's like no reason to do it (laughs) That's the kind of thing, if you force yourself to do it all the time, if you force yourself in this position to write things that you don't want to write, you will ruin yourself. I speak from experience. Um, One of the reasons why um, I um, spend so much time these days writing fan fiction is because I let myself get boxed into a place uh, where I was deeply uncomfortable professionally. And um, I wrote... Uh, I don't want to get too detailed there, but um, I'm I, I just I wrote myself into a hole with um, a publisher, and I, I couldn't get out. I, I was I was put in a box. I was labeled this. They wanted only this from me, and it was boring the shit out of me. And I stopped writing. And for those of you who know who who've known me for a while and and know how much writing I do, um, to tell you that I did not write for six and a half months, 
not a single word. And that's when I knew I had to make a change because I was ruining myself as a writer. Ouch. That's like really bad creative backlash. Yeah. So it's, it's very important that you, um, that I was about protecting your writer's space and your writing time. But there's also, there's also a layer of that where you have to protect the writer that you are. And you what have to protect, that, that um, you, go ahead. What's your quote? Um, you have to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm or something like that. Right. Yeah. You don't have to set yourself on which fire. Which is, to keep other people which is warm. what you're doing when you are trying to meet other people's expectations. But yeah, managing your um, your own expectations is difficult enough. Um, but piling on the expectations of others, especially when it involves contracts and money, um, is a whole other fucked up gold hoarding dragon. <laughs> it's just it's yeah. I mean, yeah. Thank you, Rogue. Um, publishing. Um, uh, when I want to is uh, um, rewarding and fun, but publishing, but writing because I had to, um, writing on spec was the problem. I no longer write on spec. I write what I want to write, and then I send it off. And if somebody wants it, they get it. That I don't do three, I don't do three book deals anymore. Um, I don't do any kind of deal where the, I owe anybody anything else. I don't take advances on anything but the project that they're getting. Um, so, you know, the straw that brought the camel back was, uh, the, the publisher said, okay, um, let's do a three book deal and I'll, and we'll give you $10,000. Now, you know, <laughs> that's really hard to say no to. Yeah. So I didn't say no. And I made myself dog sick trying to do it. And I did do it. I hate the books. Um, thankfully, they're no longer in print. Um, and it just, it, 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 ugh. 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 So now I don't write on spec. I, somebody could offer me a, well, let me take that back. If someone offered me a half a million dollars to write on spec, I'd be writing that book tomorrow. But, yeah. <laughs> But you have to make a choice eventually between um, – well, I made a choice between being healthy and um, being mentally and physically healthy um, and um, meeting the expectations of people who um, I didn't even really know, you know, people who, who live in other places like New York. <laughs> right for you because anything that's driving you into not writing and making you that miserable is just no no but you see people doing that I see people who in fandom who stop writing because they feel like they're not meeting the expectations of their readers and what they're working on is making them miserable so just it's it's not worth it writing is not supposed to be about making you know, 
this is for you. This is your craft. in fandom is people who twist themselves up so much um, trying to make their readers happy and then um, when they can no longer sustain it um, their um, their audience will turn on them and they will leave fandom entirely it's a vicious kind really of circle ugly. You're, yeah. you're setting it's yourself really- up to be abused by investing so much in what they want. Right, in their approval. So, please yourself. I mean, sometimes, I will say sometimes if I've got, there are times when What's working for other people or what's really gelling for other people can does have an influence on me. Like I will look at what I've had feedback on lately, and and just and, and part of it is because usually if it's I'm like trying to decide between projects, the the thing that people are more interested in will sometimes sway me. But that's when I've already got a short list and I'm looking for like a tiebreaker. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and the way, but the execution of that thing, whatever it is, is going to be what I want, not what other people have talked about or what people have said in comments. Because people will project a lot of want into the comments, even when they're not trying to be demanding. They just think they know where the story is going and they'll comment on that. And it, it's not a bad thing. I hate thing. that. But I don't, I don't like, I mean, I just, sometimes I thought people really are misinterpreting where the story is going. So sometimes it can be kind of amusing. But if you're not very secure in what you're doing and you're not very secure in your craft, you can internalize that and feel like that you're not the story you had planned isn't meeting what people want. And that can then drive some writers to be changing their, their idea. And that's, that's, that's no, that's no way to go. Then people have misinterpreted what you're writing. Just it doesn't matter if they've misinterpreted it. It doesn't mean there's any flaw in what you've written. It just means that they aren't seeing your vision. And actually, that may not be a bad thing. I don't like to be predictable. Not that I write for the unexpected thing, but um, I don't. I don't want people to just be able to see exactly where every story is going from the minute they start reading it. So. But, it, you know, like I said, sometimes people, sometimes it annoys me people make those kind of comments, and other times I just find it funny. Um, and when I did a Leo Moto back in, was it April? And I did the reveal about, you know, who Voldemort was being Merlin, the reincarnation of Merlin, and someone had commented, well, I guess, I guess Harry is King Arthur. And I just laughed because... I mean, I see where they went there. They went to the obvious, but that wasn't the plot. <laughs> but I just found it amusing. <laughs> it, it almost felt, it almost sounded beleaguered. Like, well, I guess Harry's, I guess that were Harry's King Arthur. Uh, no, no, he's not. <laughs> that wasn't even my first guess. I mean, I was like, no, no, no. That doesn't make any sense. 
if you think about it, it doesn't make any fucking sense because King Arthur um, historically does, is, is is not magical. Um, right. And if you think about Merlin's um, own history, Why would you get it in another stone? podcast? Yeah, huh? I, revealed the, I revealed the answer on. I did reveal the answer on another podcast, but okay. um, so this is out there anyway. But I mean, the, the the question was always who, when it came to Harry, was who would have been Merlin's magical equal, Merlin's magical equal, to determine who Harry is reincarnated, and the answer should be obvious, um, which is that it's Morgana. If you don't so, get it, you don't deserve to get it. But but it is you know people do jump to that Merlin and Arthur, but to me to me that is like star-crossed romance is what I'm reading there, and that kind of like wait a minute whoa what are you reading the Merlin and Arthur thing? Um, No, so yeah, so but it was just it was just funny that that to me I, I was amused by that leap. Because it didn't actually, to me, make any sense magically um, with the world building I had done that Harry would be Arthur, especially since now they're separated by um, Morgana chose to be reincarnated as Harry to mitigate any damage that Merlin might do if his plan failed, which is why there wound up being a prophecy, Morgana's return, because Merlin had failed, which is why Morgana chose to be reincarnated to deal with him. And that's why it had to be, that's why they, that's why they staggered their reincarnation was to make sure there was a backup plan. Um, Yeah. I don't, I don't usually consider hair color at all when I'm determining because Morgana's female too. So I don't consider when I'm doing reincarnation, I don't consider hair color or gender in in the so, in the who who that person turns into. That's last, and I have something to talk about. Okay, it's, okay. it's been bothering me for a while. Now I don't. I have not seen Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So obviously, I probably won't see part two because I haven't seen part one. Uh, eventually, I'll I will certainly watch them. I'm just not prepared to do that right now to my head cannon. But Jude Law needs to stop. He just needs to stop. Because um, I saw a preview. <laughs> I saw a trailer of Jude Law in his in his sassy little suit with his pretty little beard. And he needs to stop because Dumbledore is not allowed to be fucking sexy. Okay? I completely agree. Okay? So Jude Law needs to go somewhere with himself. And... and no, Jude, just no. You are fucking with my headcanon. You are fucking with it because I cannot I cannot deal with Dumbledore and Sexy in the same fucking sentence. It is ten times terrible wrongness. It is, oh, what is wrong with you, Jude Law? I understand you need a paycheck. I get it. Why couldn't you have been Grindelwald? <laughs> <laughs> We're fine with finding him sexy, but not Dumbledore. Um. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, 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 I
just if, I just really fucked up. I just really fucked up if, about it. And I'm like, why do you gotta look so good? Look at his cute little beard. Look at his little suit. Where are his silly dress robes? That would help. Someone needs to go put a dress on Jude Law. That that would help. <laughs> if 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 he's a little too old for the role now, but if casting was appropriate to Kira's feeling about the character, James Wood would have been Woods would have been cast as Dumbledore. <laughs> yes. If if there's a motherfucker I hate more than James Wood, it's probably Powers Booth. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stand to look at either one of them. Oh. Um, this is why I cast them the way I did in my little fan casting thing. But seriously, Jude, you need to stop. I just, I, I can't, I can't deal with it. I, I saw the preview and I was like, well, well, but why does he look so good? <laughs> He's not supposed to look like that. He's not supposed to be all sexy and shit. This is wrong. This is very wrong. So wrong. So my first exposure to that was when I was researching for Leomoto and was looking at because the timing would be right over Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And right. so I haven't seen the movie, and I, and I didn't want to, but I was doing all this research, and I'm seeing these scenes, and I was like, that's – because I've got young Dumbledore in the story. So I'm like, that's who I'm working with? I'm very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> It's just, it's wrong, Jude. It's just wrong. I, you just can't mess with me make, like make that. Make better choices, buddy. Make better choices. <sighs> we insist. Who, who thought that would be a good idea? Who thought? Let's, let's just cast this sexy motherfucker with his neat little beard and his little suit and uh, as Dumbledore. Joanne, did you have a finger in that? I'm not happy. I can't deal. I can't deal with it. I it, it is. I don't think I'll be able to watch Fantastic Beasts because of it. And I love Jude Law. I think he's fantastic. I think he's a great actor. I I really enjoy his work. I'm super looking forward to the next Sherlock Holmes. Because um, if it get, if, if it can get any better than RDJ and Jude Law on the same screen, I don't know what it would be. Um, um, in period costume. <laughs> That's all the sick t-shirt breaking up Um, but come on, he needs to stop because Dumbledore's not supposed to be sexy. Ever, ever, ever. Not even for you weird Snapledore people. <laughs> See, yes, I am. Snapledore would you. actually work if. Snake traveled back in time to when Dumbledore was young. <laughs> and kept him from going down such an unfortunate path. Right. We're down to he 90 seconds. And, um, I'm sorry if I put something terrible in your brain. I just had to share it. I, I sh- shall not suffer alone. Um, it's, just, it, it's just wrong, Jude. You need to stop. I can't believe that Snapledore is going to be the last bullet on my podcast list. It's more of a warning. Um, Jude, we need you to make your your 
job decisions a little bit more with a little bit more foresight, a little bit more, a little bit more judiciously. Thank you, please. Jude, be judicious. Be very judicious in the future. And no, Edie, you will never live down Snaple Door. You guys have a great evening, a great Sunday, and we'll see you next week. Say good night, Jilly. Good night.